0: So we're in the study of the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1. We'll look at verses 12 through 14. And the title of the message today is The Church of the Upper Room. The Church of the Upper Room in Acts chapter 1. Only three verses and yet a 45 to 50 or so minute sermon on three verses. And that's what we're going to study today hope you're not too hungry and get out. Well, you had donuts, you know, you had that heavenly manna earlier, you know, the donuts and the and the coffee, so maybe you're doing doing okay. In order really to understand and appreciate a person, a movement, a business, a family, a church, whatever entity it is, in order to really understand it and appreciate it, you always have to go back to the genesis. You have to go back to those inception moments those early nascent moments where it began to form. One of my favorite readings is to read biographies and autobiographies. And Two of my favorite authors or people that I've studied, one was arguably the most successful and famous businessman that America has ever produced. The other one is arguably the greatest president of the United States, and I know there's a lot of argument about that. But the first one is the businessman. When Sam Walton was seven years of age, he um, he had his own uh, he had his own business. He would go door to door and selling items, and he would um, he, he would he said, you know, I'm just so I'm so enamored with making a, a dollar, and he lived in in his words. In fact, the first. Uh, chapter in his autobiography talks about just being raised in the depression and he used the word hard scrabble. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but hard scrabble, it, it sounds like it really is. It's just a difficult existence, trying to eke out an existence and just barely, barely get him by. From the seventh grade till he finished college, he would get up about three or four o'clock in the morning and go out and deliver uh, his paper route. And so we think about the name Sam Walton today who created the Walmart empire that is worth billions and billions of dollars. You can all go back and you can trace it to a young boy who was just determined and disciplined in order to prosper himself and his family. Way before Abraham Lincoln, way before he was the president uh, during 1861 to 1865, the war between the states or the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was well acquainted with with grief and heartache, and he was going to experience it on a profound, really an exponential level when he became the president. But when he was nine years of age, his mother died. And he felt in those moments, in those crucial, horrible moments of his life, God was already beginning to shape him and prepare him. And way before 1862, when he delivered the Emancipation Proclamation, way before that, Abraham Lincoln had this vision and he had this desire of a unified nation and he was reading rapaciously and he was studying and he was preparing and then he delivered that speech. You say, well, how did they get to that point? Well, it all goes back to the inception, to the Genesis, to the beginning formative moments. If you were to take your Bible and open it up to Acts chapter 14, don't do that, but Acts chapter 1 is where we are. But if you were to read Acts chapter 14, you would go, wow, man, this is a mighty movement of God. This church in Jerusalem that started with 120, they are now in the multiplied thousands. They are going to distant shores. How in the world did they become so effective and so successful? And I would argue, go back to the beginning. Go back to the inception. Go back to those formative moments when they were created by Jesus as a church. And when the Holy Spirit of God comes, then you begin to understand the success, the movement, this living dynamic organism that has just impacted the whole world. Well, we're going to see the church in the upper room today, and we're going to look at what I want to call these salient features, these key characteristics of the early church, that if we will take the time and we will study them and seek to appropriate them not only in our lives individually and in our families, but also in our church, then we too, in the future and for, you know, subsequent generations, they can look at our life, they can look at our family, they can look at our church, and they can say, wow, God really had favor on them and God really blessed them. And we would say, go back to our beginning and go back to those formative decisions that we made that set the course for the rest of our lives and our existence. So we're gonna read Acts chapter one, i want to look at it with you today. I'm so excited to be able to preach God's word and, and I really want the focus today to be on the word of God. Now I have some amazing news I wanna share with you in a few minutes and, and that's important and I'm gonna celebrate with you and we're gonna rejoice but I really wanted to focus right now I just wanted your minds to be laser-focused on the Scriptures and on the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, go ahead and stand to your feet. Just stand up where, right where you are. Uh, if you were asleep, I'm sorry to wake up you now. But anyhow, we, we got you up. It's hard to sleep when you're standing up, so we're glad you're standing up. And we want to read the Word of God. I'm going to read it to you. And you can follow along in your tablet or in your phone or in your uh, ink and, and, and letter. Thank you, Tom Oganlay. Wonderful, wonderful job presenting how to share the gospel in during our Connect Group time. And so here we go in Acts chapter 1. Think about this with me. The church of the upper room, and what was it that made them so amazing, so effective in the future? What did they do during those formative early years? The first thing they did, they were obedient. They did what Jesus told them to do. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Verse 13. Mm -hmm. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. Okay, remember that place? The upper room where they were staying. And it's gonna list who was there. It's gonna list 11 of the 12 apostles. You say, well, what happened to the other guy? Why is not he listed? Well, when you betray the Lord and you you leave, you don't get listed, okay? And that would be Judas. But here he is. Here are these 12. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These, now watch this. This this is the key. This is what you're going to find is so amazing. It made them so effective. These all continued. Now that word continued, that participle, we, we just read it as, oh, they stayed on, they continued. Really a good translation of that Greek word, that participle is, they persevered. They with determined discipline and great determination, they did the following. They stayed in one accord, in unity. They were in prayer and in supplication with the women, think about that now for just a moment. What a revolutionary statement. Women were just a notch above slaves in first century Rome. But Jesus Christ did more to elevate the status of women than any other person who ever lived. He said, ladies, you are not up here. You are right on the same ontological plane as a man, and Jesus Christ is the one who did that. And the women were there at the the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. It was the women, and so we're not surprised that of the 120, there's a lot of women in the early church. Ladies, can you say amen to that, amen? Ooh, I like that back there. That was a good amen. And Mary, and there are a lot of Marys that follow Jesus, but Luke, Dr. Luke, the good historian, first-rate medical doctor that he was, who wrote this letter, who wrote this book, said, "In Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, as well as Jesus Christ's brothers, his half-brothers. Father, we thank you for your word. We stand in awe, we stand amazed that we could read, Lord, and understand what happened in the early days. And Lord, we don't want to read just with a a mind of intellect or academics or history. God, we want to read because, Lord, we want you to do in us what you did in them. Lord, we want to read with the point of application. God, may we be the church of the upper room in Austin, Texas. Lord, may we be this church that is characterized by discipline and obedience and unity and prayer and fellowship. God, do that work in us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, and you may, you may be seated. One more introductory note before I get into these, these five characteristics. You, you may look at verses 1 uh, or 12 through 14 and say, well, where's evangelism? Where's missions in the early church? Well, it's conspicuously omitted because the early church, they had not received, I mean, this, this baptism, this coming of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's about to come. And when he comes, everything will change. And they will go out. And Acts 2.11 says, and they went out and they spoke the word of God. And then, and then Peter stands up anointed by the Holy Spirit. And three, listen to this, this church went from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon. You say, well, how did that happen? The Holy Spirit of God, He came and anointed and empowered them, and they went out and they witnessed, and Peter, he stood up with his public proclamation, and God did this phenomenal work. But before that, before that, in in these early, early days, remember Jesus Christ in Matthew 16 says, upon this rock I will build my church. Ah, Jesus will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And then he says, it is imperative that I I live and that I die and that I rise from the dead. I will ascend to the Father and then I will send the Holy Spirit and your lives will be forever changed and you will be my people. You will be my church and you will take this gospel from Jerusalem. Watch this concentric movement. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost, parts of the earth to the distant shores this gospel will be preached but in order for that to happen it was imperative number 1 that they be obedient and point number 1 is obedience after the ascension the disciples returned to Jerusalem that's so important church that's precisely what Jesus the great commander told them to do he said now wait in Jerusalem in acts 1:4 he says, do not depart from there. He departed. He went up. He was ascended out of the Mount of Olives up into the clouds. We read that and we studied that. And then he went on back to heaven. And then the early church, they had 120 of them, they assembled together in Jerusalem. And, and Luke is good here. I mean, I, he's, he's wonderful here. He says, then they returned to Jerusalem from Mount called Olivet, which is near Near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. What does that mean? The Sabbath day's journey was uh, was the distance that you could travel and not break the Sabbath. It was one kilometer. It's 2,000 cubits, if you're interested in that metric. Or this is the one we could appreciate the most. It's about three quarters of a mile. So they traveled about three quarters of a mile, crossed the Kidron Valley out of the Mount of Olives and back up into Jerusalem. And they gathered up into that place that upper room that was so significant to them. This upper room, it could be. We're not for sure, but it could be the very place where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It could be the very place that Luke describes in his gospel that where Jesus came and he appeared to them. You said, well, what were they doing? As they were obedient to Jesus and they were gathered in the upper room, this early band of Christians, right? Their leader had been crucified I mean, the temperature was really hot for martyrdom, and people could lose their lives if they were found professing this name of Jesus whom the Roman government just crucified. So what are they doing? Are they in fear? Are they in trepidation going, oh no, what is going to happen to us? No, they're they're in the upper room, and they're gathered together. And look what Luke says about this. It's phenomenal in his gospel. He said, and he led them out as far as Bethany, the Mount of Olives, And he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. And now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them. That is called the ascension. And he he was carried up into heaven. Watch this. And they worshiped him. The early church worshiped the risen, resurrected Christ. They went back to Jerusalem with great sadness and discouragement and depression. Heavens, no! The Bible says they went back to Jerusalem with great pulsating joy. Why? Because the very one who said, I will die and I will arise from the dead, he did that. Nobody else did that. Nobody has ever done that. Is that why you don't follow Muhammad? That's exactly right. Is that why you don't follow you know, Confucius? That's exactly right. You know why? Because Jesus Christ and Him alone died on a cross, was put in a borrowed tomb, and praised God up from the grave. He arose, and that's why I worship Him. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's why we worship Him. Man, the resurrection is more than historical fact to me, church. It is the very reason that I'm standing before you today. Jesus Christ is alive. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. And He's changed me. And He's changed many of you. And then there they were, continually. Watch this now. Not just in the upper room, they were in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. So they're obedient, right? They're waiting with joy. And they are, Terry, I love this phrase, they are worshiping while. They are waiting. I tell you, the person who has the most difficulty in their life, it's not a lost person. It's not an unsaved, unregenerate person. It's a Christian who's living in disobedience. You look at them. They're the most miserable people on the planet. They know better. They've tasted the goodness, the salvation of God, but in their own volition and in their own obstinate, recalcitrant souls, they turn away from God and say, well, God, I can figure this thing out now. And they get bitter, they get angry, they get worried, they get frustrated, they get depressed, and they go, why is my life such a mess? I thought life was supposed to be better once I got God in it, but you don't walk in obedience, you don't walk in worship, and therefore you're so sad. But the early church says you don't have to be sad. In fact, you can wait on God. You can worship God while you wait on God. You can obey God until God comes and improves your situation. And buddy, he's about to come. In 10 days of Pentecost, son, they're so glad that they stayed with the Lord and they stayed with one another. The early church waited in prayer, obedience, stay with me, joy, and worship. Some of you are waiting today. You're waiting on God. Man, you need God to show up, don't you? You're looking for a spouse. You're like, come on, Lord, I'm not getting any younger. Bring him. Bring her yesterday. Come on. Or, Lord, we want children. Or, Lord, would you open up the womb and grant us so that we, God, you can trust us with this, God, grant us children. Lord, I need a new job. And, and Lord, I need a new ministry. Or, I need a promotion. Or, I, I need recognition. Or, I need whatever it is you need. And you're waiting on God. And here's the deal. While we wait, we can get bitter. We can get impatient. And the last thing on our mind could be joy, obedience, and worship. And yet that's the first thing that should be on our minds. To the early church, here they are. And Luke says they went to Jerusalem. They were obedient. And then Luke says in his gospel, they had joy and they worshiped the Lord, not only in the upper room, but they even with boldness went. They went out to the temple. They went to the temple. I mean, they weren't cowardly. They were not intimidated. They just, oh, no, what's going to happen? Just, no, they, they went out publicly, and they're praising the name of Jesus. I, I want to share an Old Testament reference with you. And if I'm redacting this in my mind, I would omit this for the sake of time, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to share this with you because somebody needs to hear this. In the book of Exodus, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. Y'all with me? Y'all remember that? Charlton Heston, you open up the water. Okay. Moses, before God opened up the water, the Egyptian army... Okay, here's the children of Israel. Y'all with me? Children of Israel. Here comes the Egyptian army. Oh, and they're chasing them, right? All right, here we go. And they come up to a body of water called the Red Sea, and it's not parted yet. It is flowing mightily. And here they come just like a big old tarantula spider about to pounce on them, right? And they're standing on the precipice of the water. And they look at water, a watery grave in the front, and they're looking at the Egyptian army breathing down their necks. And this is what they said to Moses. You sorry rascal! Were there no graves in Egypt? Why have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Do y'all, know any Baptist, I mean, do y'all know any people like that? <laughs> Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? You hear what they're saying? It'd been better if we just stayed in Egypt. No, no, we, we just go back. Really? Being a slave and being in bondage? And Moses said to the people, I love this. Moses is such an amazing man of God, such a leader. He didn't say, Lord, just kill them. Just, just kill him. <laughs> God said that. God said, move, Moses. I'm going to kill them all. Y'all remember that? And Moses says, no, 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 don't, don't, Lord. Please don't kill them. Let, just, just help me and help me help them. So Moses says, stand still and see the salvation Of the Lord Moses cried, and God parted the waters, and they crossed to the other side. Yep, come on. God delivered. God delivered them. Stand, oh, cathedrals on us there, brother. Amen. All right, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord Moses cried. And God, watch what he says, and the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see them again no more forever. What are you doing at the precipice of the sea while the Egyptians are breathing down your neck? Angry, impatient, worried, fretful, frustrated. If God brought you out of Egypt, by the way, guys, the beautiful picture of the Exodus is the redemption of Jesus Christ to save your soul from hell. And if Jesus saved your soul from hell, and he saved the the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, don't you think God can part the water? Don't you think God can do miracles if we only believe? The second thing is, is fellowship. The second characteristic of the early church that I want us to seek to understand, and more than understand, but to emulate, is the fellowship that they share. There's about 120 of them, and they're gathered in the upper room. Now, that must be a spacious room, right? How many of y'all can hold 120 people in your room, in your upper room. These were common rooms. And one writer says they were placed above crowded streets, they were private, and they served, quote, as places of assembly, study, and prayer. So that's where they were. In Jerusalem, somebody had given them access to an, a room that was upstairs, and it was there that they gathered. Well, who was there? I find this so interesting that Luke, Being a first-rate historian, he goes, I want you to know who was there. First of all, it was the apostles. Ooh, watch this. He doesn't list the apostles the way the other gospels, or even his gospel, lists the apostles. Things have changed. He lists the first three. Check check your Bible out. Who are the first three disciples' apostles that he lists? Peter, James, James and John. Who were the three men that Jesus Christ spent the bulk of his time with? Peter, James, and John. This is not an accident. God had a method. Jesus had a plan to make disciples who would make disciples and the very people that he would pour his life into the most. Not the crowds, not even the twelve, but those three men. They are the ones now. Peter, Acts 1 through 12 is all about Peter. And then you see John who's writing a great corpus of the New Testament. And James, the leader of the church there, will die a martyr's death in Acts chapter 12, but the church will flourish and those apostles, those very people are gathered. That's so important. Number two are the women. Come on, ladies, you're in the house. Luke 23, 49 and 55 says, the women, disciples, you can find them. At Jesus' crucifixion, at his burial, they're the first to witness at the empty tomb. Who were these women? Thank you for asking me. I want to tell you. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Luke 24:10. One writer suggests that it's Mary and Martha, Salome, and Mary the wife of Clopas. And then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is very important. This is the last time you'll ever read about these people. This is it. You will not read about the other nine or the other eight disciples again. And you will not read about Mary again. You know why? Because Mary is not to be venerated or worshiped. She is to give birth to the Son of God and that's who we worship. So Mariology, is a fictitious thing created by the Roman Catholic. It, it should not be that we venerate and worship a woman. No, we, wor- we worship the Christ child that she gave birth to. You don't see Mary anymore, but you see a whole lot of Jesus in the rest of the New Testament. So why just don't get that truncated and twisted in our minds. No, we honor Mary, we thank God for Mary, but we don't worship Mary, we worship Jesus and him alone. You say well you've, you that that's your opinion. Yes. That's my humble and accurate opinion indeed. Number 3 are Jesus brothers. Oh my goodness. The brothers of Jesus who thought he was a lunatic. Who thought he had lost his ever loving mind. You're the Messiah, Oh, my word. Messiah. But after he arose from the dead, they said no, we're we're the lunatics. You're the Lord. And they believed on him. Did y'all know that? Let me give you their names. You've heard of them. James, who wrote the book of James, was a half-brother of Jesus. You say, why do you keep saying half-brother? Well, they had the same mama, but they didn't have the same (laughs) dad. You with me? Virgin-born. They weren't virgin-born, he was. So they shared the same mom, but not the same dad. James, who wrote the book of James. Have you ever heard this name, Jude? Judas, who wrote the book of Jude. And then you have Joseph and Simon. These are those that are gathered together in obedience and in fellowship in the early church. You say, why is this so important? Why do we have to know history? Why is it that we have to understand the dynamics of what? I I mean, just give me some bluebell ice cream, brother. Just give me over here some cherry cobbler. I don't need all this meat and potatoes and celery and broccoli. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. I need to read it. I need to digest it. I need to understand it so that I can greater appreciate what is coming. All right? So let's go to number three is diligence. Stay diligent with me, church. Watch this, verse 14. They all continued. Pros kataruntis. Pros cataruntis is a participle that means they not only continued, but they did so with perseverance and with steadfastness and persistency. They They were so disciplined and diligent to meet as a group. And this speaks to me powerfully of the importance of the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. We don't gather together because we don't have anything better to do. That's what Bill Gates said, and I disagree with him vehemently. Bill Gates, who created Microsoft, said, I'm not going to church. There's a whole lot more things I can do on a Sunday than being bored to death and going to church. We don't know Jesus. And you don't know Jesus, you don't want to go to church. But man, if you know him, woo, if you know him, you want to be where the people of God are. Man, we, we don't have to drag you in here. Man, you just... <laughs> man, in my younger days, church, I just want you to know I'd be flying off of this thing here and I'd be running. But I'm hurt. I'm sore. I can't I can't do it. Woo. Man, I went a long way yesterday. Can't do it. Thank you. Diligence, perseverance, gathering together. The Bible says in Proverbs twelve twenty seven. but diligence is man's precious possession. I almost didn't include this, but I want to include this. People, you know, they say, well, you have a PhD, right? A post hole digger. Is that what that stands for? No. No, I do. It took me nine years after I graduated from college. He said, oh, I bet you're really smart. No, I'm just, I'm just really determined. I'm just, God has given me a spirit of, of discipline. They said, well, young man, we'll let you in the PhD program on probation because you did so terrible on the GRE exam. I'm like, welcome to life, brother. I, I can take the GRE, the SAT, the ACT, the ESPN. I can take it all. And I will never do any better. Call me dumb. Call me frozen. Call me what you want. But if you just let me in, well, they let me in. And that's how. Here's what the D stands for in the Ph.D. for me. It stands for discipline. It stands for determination. It's this bulldog tenacity that the people of God should possess more than anybody. That we're determined that we're not going to give up because Jesus Christ is our king. And he is worthy of our perseverance and our persistency. He is worthy of our discipline because Jesus, mm, let me tell you something, the great things, the mighty things come to those who never give up. You just can't give up. Let me tell you a story. Tony Bennett, you don't know that name. It sounds like a singer, but it's not. It's It's a basketball coach. Tony Bennett used to coach the University of Washington Cougars, and they were terrible. One writer says they were at the bottom of the bottom of the Pac-10 when he was coaching them. And Tony Bennett, whose dad was an amazing basketball coach too, he watched his father, and he learned everything that he could. And then he took on this team from his father, and they went from the bottom to 26 and eight in 2006. That was unheard of. They went to the NCAA March Madness Championship, which is unheard of. They said, well, that was a fluke. He said, well, I'll do it again. 26 and eight in 2007. That's very impressive. i am telling you, there's a picture of Tony Bennett and he's got his fist clutched like this and he's got a smile on his face as he's coaching his team. And one writer said, that's him tenacity. He never quits, never gives up, and yet he does so with joy. You know how he does that? Because he's a follower of Jesus. Five of his, on his team at the University of Washington accepted Christ as their Savior while he was the coach. Well, that was then, and this is now. Tony Bennett's 49 years of age. He's the head coach of the number three team in America, the Virginia Cavaliers. Does anybody know? Can I help y'all Do y'all know what happened last year at the number one seed, the number one team in all of America, when they went into March Madness, they played, I don't even remember the team that they played, but I do remember this, they lost. That was the first time in the history of the NCAA championship that a number one seed lost to a lowly 16 seed, and Tony Bennett was the head coach of that group, and they interviewed him. Man, I'm just be honest. I don't want nobody interviewing me if I just lost to a number 16 Said I would just say, please get the camera out of my face. I'm gonna go suck lemons and persimmons and I think I'll just die. I don't, I don't wanna to talk to anybody. And he just stood up like a man and he just took it. He said, yes, I know I've made history today and I'm broken over it in my team. We're, just, we're crushed by it, but we're gonna press on. Well, that was then. Today, they're the number three team in America. Here's Tony Bennett in his own words. I have great things in my life. I love my wife and I love my family. I love coaching and I love basketball. Those are wonderful things, but when you line them up in comparison to Christ and the relationship you can have with him, with what he's done for you and what he's given you, well, they don't compare. That's the greatest truth I know, end of quote. How do you you get there? How do you get to that place where you have this joy and you have this euphoria about you, even though things are hard and difficult and painful? Well, you stay determined. You stay disciplined. You stay with Jesus. He loves you. He loves me. And we've got to do the basics, do the basic axioms, the fundamentals of the faith. Yes, Dr. Tom Oganlay. we've got to get up every morning, read the Word of God, pray to God, fill me up, Holy Spirit, and then send me out into this world to make a difference. So that is, that is diligence, all right? Let me give you two more. Oh, man, that's a great verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Daniel Van Cleve, you ever read this verse? It's your favorite, isn't it? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Discipline. All right, next is unity. Oh, don't you see this church in verse 14? These all continued, proskrentas, with determination, with, ooh, homo thumedas, with unity. One translation reads, they continued with one purpose and one mind. Another writer says that they had this spiritual unity that, was, that characterized the early fellowship. No fissures, no, no schisms, no factions. They were unified in their worship of Jesus. They had so much opposition, they could not oppose each other. I don't have many profound statements, but I just laid one on you. I've never said that in my life. I can't even remember what I said. Let me, let me see if I can bring it back up. They were so they had so much opposition out there, they could not afford to oppose one another in here. They were unified, rallying around the battle cry that Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. No disunity. The Bible says in Proverbs 6:19 that God hates the person who sows discord among his people. I'm so glad. I'm rejoicing today that our church, we, we're more unified than I've ever seen us. more more unified in prayer, more unified in preaching, teaching the Word of God, more unified in leading people to Jesus and baptizing them, more unified in in saying, Lord, we want to build strong marriages and and build strong families, and God, we want to grow together in unity. Lord, we want to be up in our worship, vertical, passionate worship in you. Lord, we want to disciple the body of Christ. Woo, glory. Then we want to go, God. We want to go to the nations. We want to go to our neighbors, and that, is the mission, the vision, the purpose, and the passion of Great Hills Baptist Church. And I'm so tickled to death, thrilled, and honored that I get to pastor this, this group, I mean, this, this, this band of the body of Christ, these believers who say, we are going to be one in Christ, and we're going to go out and make a difference in this world. Hallelujah. Let me commend you. Let me thank you. Let me praise God for you. And this is where I think it's so vital that we take a page out of the early church and say, one of the key salient features of the New Testament church is unity. And that's what we have to strive for. And the last one is prayer. And the only reason I put prayer last is because in verse 14, it's the last characteristic. They continued with one accord. Now watch, this is really interesting to me. If you have your Bibles, you can't read, you can't see this, but in the New Testament, the Greek, it says, in the prayer and in the supplication. Both are prefaced with a definite article. And Luke's doing that to underscore how important it is that they, that they prayed. The first word, prosuke, prayer, means worship. Did y'all know that? When that first word there, when it says they, they were in prayer... That word, a really a good translation of it is worship. I thought that was really interesting. And then, then he said, and in the supplication. That's a totally different word, desus. It means petition and request. One writer puts it this way, and I love this. He said, they were assiduous in prayer. I had to look that up too. It's diligent. They were assiduous they were diligent in prayer. Acts 2, 42 says this, and just a couple of pages over, and they continued... Mm, what? Hello? where did we see that before? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. There's some Baptists in there, amen. Some fellowship, some breaking of bread, and in their prayers. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I imagine in John... They remember in John 14, 14, when Jesus said, Ask anything in my name, and I will do it. So this is the church of the upper room. Do you like that? Do you like what you see? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it powerful? Obedience, unity, fellowship, prayer, determination, all those, I mean, really stellar characteristics and I believe with all of my heart, Great Hills Baptist Church and any other church that listen. I only have 300 people sometimes, not in here, but they're listening out there in Facebook, in that world. Where, wherever you go to church, or if you're looking for a church, go to a place that best they can, they mimic and model their life and ministry after the early church. I heard a song this week. Man, it's a cool song. I got so excited, I sent it to all of our staff. It's called, it's from Cochrane and & Company, and the title of it is, Take Me Back to Church. Mm, 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 mm. If I could sing rap and do, I could do it, but I can't. It don't sound good when Pastor Danny tries to break out in rap. But listen to the words. He said, I don't like rap. I don't like anything. Okay. Take me back to the place that feels like home to the people that I can depend on. To the faith that's in my bones, take me back to a preacher and a verse where they've seen me at my worst. To the love I had at first, oh, I wanna go back to church. Mm. Tried to walk on my own, but I wound up lost. Now I'm making my way to the foot of the cross. It's not a trophy for the winners, it's a shelter for the sinners, and it's right where I belong. Man. Thank you, Lord. So let's, let's pray together. I, I know what time it is. It's a little late, but I know the most important thing is about to happen. It's where we extend you the invitation, the opportunity to become a part of a not perfect, very imperfect, but a striving church here at Great Hills. We invite you to come. Be a part. Link your life with us. Next week, March the 3rd, we'll begin our Discover Great Hills New Members class. If you're interested, if you have a modicum of interest, then check it out. Sign up. Come. You'll enjoy it. You'll you'll enjoy it just from what you'll learn. And if the Holy Spirit confirms in your heart, then come and be a part of us. But more than that, more than joining a church, I really pray that you'll join the family of God, that you will enter into the kingdom. You say, how do I enter into the kingdom? By faith and repentance. Say, Jesus, I know I'm a lost sinner. I deserve hell. I know, Lord, I'm a mess, but I know you're a savior and I believe in you and I'm trusting in you today. I think it's February 24th, 2019, this day, I'm stepping into your love into your light. Would you do that today? Some of you need to, no doubt. Watching us on, on the screen, or maybe you're right here at 10,500 Jollyville. Let me, let me just, let me press this point home. Let me drill down deep with you for a moment. Before you can be anything great for God, you gotta know God. You gotta yield your life. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God. You say, well, how do I know if I've been born again by the Spirit of God? You will know. You will know, and everybody around you will know. Because there will be love and joy. And peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You will have the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifested in your life because you received the Lord Jesus. You want to do that today? Then do it. Say, God, here I am. Save my soul. In Jesus' name I pray. Hallelujah. That's what you have to do. Let Let us nurture you. Let us disciple you. Let us baptize you. Let us teach you the commandments of Jesus so that you can walk in faith and walk in victory. Father, we love you so much. God, we thank you for the early church. What a blessing it is to study them. Thank you, Lord, for our church. And thank you, Lord, that you are doing a mighty work in us and through us, and we praise you for that. So, Lord, we pray now. If we would just linger at the altar for a moment... We would just allow the Spirit of God to saturate and marinate us and, and, Lord, not get into the microwaves right now and just zap it. But, Lord, maybe an oven and just, just listen and just move with the Spirit of God and what he, cal- what he calls us to do, what He tells us to do. So, Lord, we love you. We commit this sacred, sacred time to you. We pray, God, for this altar, that it would be anointed, that it would not be a forbidden place, God, that people would not look at the altar and go, oh, I could never go up there. What are people going to think about me if I go to the altar? Don't don't, don't worry about what people think about you. Don't worry. Be more concerned about what Jesus, he's calling you. He's calling me to the altar. Go to the altar and pray. And maybe somebody will come alongside of you and put their hand on you and say, let me pray for you, sister. Let me pray for you, brother. Oh, God in heaven, we ask you, Lord, to have your way, your will in us, in this church. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Come on, church, help me. All God's people said, amen Amen and amen. So let's stand up. And Terry, you lead us in a song, and we will pray. We will gather together, and we will do business with God even, even now. Even now.